I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. Today I am in Ras Al Khaimah in the United Arab Emirates. Such a beautiful place. I am part of the Global Citizens Forum with the title this year of Human Metamorphosis. We're attempting through some of the best thinkers in the world to look at the future of humanity and what we can do to actually make it better. The team was wonderful enough to introduce me to one of those best thinkers in the world, Chris Voss. I was just wondering who you were going to mention. <laughs> yeah, I'm g- coming to you, coming to you. I think Chris is actually, you know, when we say he wrote the book on a topic. So Chris literally wrote the book on negotiations. He was the head of the international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. And he was, let me get this right, the FBI hostage negotiation representative for the National Security Council hostage working group. That's a lot of words, but I can also imagine a lot of pressure. Today, Chris is more well known for his incredible book, Don't Split the Difference, Never Split the Difference. And he, uh, where basically his point of view, it's not only negotiating for money, it's not only negotiating for the lives of some people in distress, it's negotiation is part of life in general. And he shows everyone how including negotiation in your life can make your life a better life. And I will absolutely tell you, it is a must read. I rarely ever say on this podcast about books that you cannot miss, but it is a must read. It's absolutely enlightening, honestly, in terms of how to navigate a world where negotiations are actually part of everything that you do without you knowing it. He's also the founder of the and the CEO of the Black Swan Group, where he takes the same objective of taking what he learned during his career and trying to give that to the world in a way that allows them to negotiate for the embetterment of the deal rather than just one side. And uh, I'm a big fan. I used to be a businessman my whole life. And I remember vividly, Chris, uh, it was in IBM, just very early in my career, where I attended a negotiation skills course. And, uh, and I, uh, you know, I'm a Middle Eastern, so we haggle all the time, right? And I walk in and I'm thinking I know how to negotiate. Turns out I had no clue because it was always about splitting the difference somehow. Right. When, when you come up and say, no, 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 never split the difference. You know, it's not about that at all. There is a lot more depth and layers yeah. uh, in, in, the, in a negotiation. So I'm a huge fan. I read your work. I love what you do. But I want to start from a place of more curiosity, if you want. So our only reference to a hostage negotiator in, uh, in the world is Hollywood. Right, okay? unfortunately. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I always wonder because... You know, this person is always hyper-stressed. You don't come across that way. Uh, he's always, you know, led by a boss that is annoying and corrupt. You seem to absolutely love your boss. So he's always shouting, like, get me two, you know, grande lattes and block four blocks around me. And, 
You know, it's just it's right. just really weird the the image. But but I wonder what it actually is like. Like, what is it like to be in those situations where someone's life depends on you and depends on your negotiation skill? Well, I always relied on a team. Um, I learned early on to rely on a team and a process. And if if you get a, a process that you believe in and uh, a team that you believe in, um, it's okay. Mm. I mean, you sort of you relax into it a little bit and. I look back now on, on the stuff that I was in the middle of. Um, you know, there's the analogy of a, a frog in, uh, being put into hot water. Mm-hmm. You know, if they raise the temperature slowly, mm-hmm. then a frog can handle a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and more than you can ever imagine. And so as I got into it slowly and got used to the idea, you do take a lot on. You realize, you uh, looking back on, I realized that I was really in the middle of a lot of overwhelming life-threatening things i a couple of years ago uh when i was living in la i get a message on facebook from the son of two missionaries gracia and martin burnham that had been kidnapped in the philippines martin was killed and, and gracia was shot to the leg at the end of it it was a the, the whole case was very tragic and i had in a post you know this century world on facebook had become connected with Gracia Burnham on Facebook. There's a number of hostages and former hostages that I'm connected with on Facebook. So I get this message on Facebook from a young man named Jeff, same last name. I'm wondering like, ah, I wonder, you know, yeah, they had, a, they had a son named Jeff. I wonder if it's the same person. Uh, his father, as a missionary, had been a pilot. Mm. And consequently, he was flying private jets. He had become a pilot himself. And the message said, my mom said that when I'm in L.A., I should say hello to you. So I'm thinking like, wow, it's the same guy. And we go to we go to lunch, and it was a cordial lunch. We talked about what was going on in his life these days, and what he really wanted to talk to me. Waited till I was driving him back to the airport. Mm. And then he started to open up, and about all the stress that the family had gone through and was still going through. And his aunt, his mother's sister, Mary Jones, had been phenomenal in the case. I mean, she was phenomenal. She was a force that would not be ignored. And so I started telling him about how much I admired his aunt. And he says, can, can I tell her that? Wow. And I said, yeah, of, of course. I mean, she was fantastic. She made a wonderful difference. And he said, she still blames herself mm. for it going wrong. Mm. And it had been almost 20 years. Mm. And when I was seeing the stress in him and him talking about the stress of his mom, or his aunt, I remember thinking, you know, my God, what did I used to do? For a living, exactly. What, what, what was I into? Yeah, I, I just edited the, the, the pressure and the stakes. You get introduced to gradually, and pretty soon you're in the middle of something, and you're taking it for granted that. Twenty years later, you say to yourself, "Wow, I can't believe I did that." It's, it's incredible. You, you know what? I look at your life, and it reminds me of, you know, those ICU, the doctors that get the worst cases, someone has been crushed in an accident, right? And I worked with quite a few of them in my happiness work. And the thing is, they save lives, like every single day, they save five, 10, 12 lives, right? And then every now and then, someone comes in beaten so bad that they lose that person, right? And, and, and the idea of them thinking, if they stop and say, oh my God, I failed, First of all, it's so unfair, right? Because in reality, if you take it in context, if the person didn't come to them, he had no chance anyway. And by the way, you just saved 36 other people before you came to that person, right? 
And I think your situation, when I heard, I heard you speak about the story of the Philippines before, obviously it is one of the things that has been personal and touching for you. I found myself saying, but how many others did you save? And how many others did you, did your presence make a difference to? Yeah. When some of them are just beyond our capabilities, really. Yeah, exactly. Some, some are. Some are. That was, that was one of the things, you know, you said you're making a boss analogies. Mm-hmm. You know, the movies is a boss is a, a jerk. And uh, my boss in the FBI, again, listener, was a great guy. And I learned a lot from him. And one of, one of the things he always used to say was best chance of success, which means, yeah, you're not going to save them all. Because yeah. best chance it means that sometimes you fail. It's not 100% chance. I mean, it's, I think it's expected. It's part of what you sign up for is that, that sometimes you fail. You know what? You sign up for that, but you don't know that that's what it is. Yeah, at least you're hopeful you, you don't, right? Yeah, but it's a, it is a very different situation because it's almost as if your negotiation here is a success or fail, which is not normally how negotiations are, right? Sometimes negotiations are, hey, split the difference, right? You can't split the difference. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, you, 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 can't, you can't go to someone and say, okay, send me two arms and a leg, right? That's not, that doesn't, you know, doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those situations... Imagine if you're a hostage and you heard that. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, get another negotiator, please. <laughs> but, but, you know, so, so these are very, very um, black and white. And these are very success and failure based. It's like one or zero, right? Well, kind of, sort of, but they also always have ripple effects. Mm. They're always going to have ripple effects. Like hostage negotiators have to learn very early on that there's a reputational aspect to the, how the deal went out, down and how you dealt with the person mm. um, because it's going to get around. Yeah. The bad guys are going to find out about it. Or um, Oh, interesting. The impact of the effect. Like, what am I talking about? In 2004, Al-Qaeda was, uh, was chopping people's heads off on video. Mm. That's when, that's when Al, Al Jazeera was, at the birth of Al Jazeera, they were kind of taken hostage themselves by Al Qaeda because they were trying to operate in that area and Al Qaeda was giving them uh, the footage and basically saying, if you don't air this, we're going to kill you. And then, of course, Al Jazeera goes on to become a legitimate news source. Like, I remember the first time I did an interview at the studio in Al, Al Jazeera in Washington, D.C., probably about Six or seven years later, I couldn't believe where I was because this used to be, you know, was the, the TV channel of, of, of murder mm. at first. But anyway, uh, Al-Qaeda was killing people, murdering them, and feeding the videos. Very similar to what Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's ISIS. Mm. ISIS was doing in 2012. So, but they were doing it for reasons that people didn't realize. Mm. Like, terrorism is really, as much as anything else, it's publicity, it's, it's PR. Is it? And it, can, and it can be recruited. What do you mean by that? Well, um, in, in 2004, it was, it was recruiting and fundraising. Because what, what most of the world re- didn't realize was happened simultaneously while Al-Qaeda was chopping people's heads off. Teenagers and young people across the world were flocking to, that to the Middle East to join Al-Qaeda. Oh. Because... Because... If you were a criminal, uh, a ne'er-do-well, a miscreant in South Central LA or in the Bronx or in in any impoverished country, city in the the world, and you're a criminal, you'll cross the world to become a terrorist because that's that's an an increase in status. You won't cross the world to to go be another, to be a criminal. And so Al-Qaeda had gotten the world's attention 
cutting people's heads off, and they were drawing the worst of the worst. world yeah. at the at the same time, very same time. Every Western country was watching its borders for young people leaving, headed for the Middle East, and they tried to set up what laws so that you couldn't leave your country to go to the Middle East. So we caught on to that that them them murdering people publicly was for recruiting and for fundraising. What we thought all we got to do is we change the narrative to this being an act of terrorism to simply being a crime. Mm. And the first time we managed to successfully do that was the murder of an American citizen in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and we put his widow-to-be into the media, and she spoke on, on behalf of her husband to save his life, to, but in a very respectful way. Interesting. Very respectful towards the Middle East, towards the culture, and the fact that she pointed out that we've been guests here in Saudi, and we're not your enemy. At the time, Al-Qaeda was pointing their fingers at enemies, and the indisputable truth was, we're not your enemy. We were guests in your country. So he gets killed anyway, and many aspects of the Arab media the next day picked up that it was a criminal act, not an act of terrorism, and that they talked a lot about how human she was and how respectful she was. And we continued that through the course of the summer of 2004 so that the backlash became Al-Qaeda is not terrorists or barbarians. Americans love to call people barbarians, even though it's a compliment, mm -hmm. but they're criminals. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we got the narrative changed to them being criminals, even though the people died, the ripple effects were that Al-Qaeda stopped doing it because it was hurting their recruiting. Because you're not going to leave a 17-year-old, a 19-year-old, is not going to leave their home country where they're a criminal to go to another country where they're still going to be a criminal. That's an incredible strategy. And to, and to understand that. So, so what you're doing here is you're sort of thinking about the other person. You're not even negotiating with the other person, but you're, understand, you're negotiating the situation. You're influencing the situation. Interesting. And, and in that case, because their objective is, is to recruit, then if you sort of demyth that objective, they fail and they stop doing it. Right. If you, if you take it away. If you understand what, what they're really doing. What the, the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. What does that mean? What that means is you have to understand what the other side is really after. Mm. What, what's the commodity they're really after? Is it publicity? Is it, is it influence? Are they trying to buy time? Are they trying to not make a deal and make it look like they are? Happens a lot. It happens in the business world all the time. And, and it, that was what was going on with Al-Qaeda in that time frame. Because, you know, they, they would come up, they had a kidnapping in Iraq. And, and one kidnapping, they said, we demand that all the women be released, uh, all the Iraqi women be released from the Iraqi jails within 72 hours. Mm. And our, we thought, well, if we wanted to do this, could we do it in 72 hours? Mm. Well, it would, we didn't know that there were any women in jail at the time that were being held prisoners. So it's going to take us 72 hours to, to figure out. that out. Yeah. So they were trying to make it look like they were negotiating when they weren't. Mm. That was their objective, to make themselves look like that they were trying to collaborate. And they really weren't. They were trying to orchestrate the murder of an American. And so we just said, this is impossible. You know it's impossible. What you're trying to do is commit a murder and make it look like... It's our mistake. Uh, yeah, it's somebody else's fault. Mm. And so call, calling a negotiation out is what's really at stake is what really is the cha challenge. And you have to look at it from, it's not, not what you think it's at stake, it's what they think is at, 
is at stake. But then you're assuming in this, Chris, that the other person is as clever as you, that they have a strategy, they know what they're doing, that they... Well, they have a strategy. Yeah. They do have a strategy. Now, clever or not, it's sort of like beauty. It's probably in the eye of the beholder, right? <laughs> I love that. That's true, actually. I mean, there, there, is, there are people who are talented at, at making a negotiation just painful, really. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's very true. That's true. Painful and difficult or... They love the debate. They, you know, they're there to debate and argue as opposed to actually make a deal. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I, I've got a, a number of friends. I've got friends on all sides of all issues. I mean, Amazing. literally. Yeah, I, I, feel, I, feel I, live, I feel I live exactly the same way. And so to talk about my Israeli friends doesn't mean I don't all, also have Palestinian friends. Correct. But when I, you know, friends in the Israeli Defense Forces and the police negotiation teams, and we'd be training with them, and this is what one of them said to me. They said, you get two Israelis together, you got 24 opinions. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> All of my friends actually are like that. And, and those opinions will surface at the same time. Most of the time, right? So negotiation has no pauses between them. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. So to them, I mean, what's, you know, they're there for the debate, for the exchange of ideas. Yes, Not exactly. Make a deal. Yeah. Have, have you been, I mean, I say that to all of my Israeli friends, you know, have you been in a meeting room where they literally, four of them are talking exactly at the same time, <laughs> which basically none of them means none of them is listening yeah, at right, all. Right, right. And I'm supposed to listen to all four. I find that quite interesting. Sort that all out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of, one of the most interesting business cultures I've ever operated in, honestly. Again, being a Middle Eastern, I was welcomed because of my Google position and so on. And, and it was a very interesting place to do business. I think them and some of the Eastern, China and Korea and so on, where, where the limit of the negotiation is not a win-win. It normally edges on, no, we win more a little than you. And in China, it's normally we win only and you lose. Did you feel that in business negotiations? On the surface. Okay. We all start out as human beings, no matter where we are. I mean, it sounds like a, a simple fact, but what that is, is we're all exactly the, alike and other things begin to get layered on top of that. Gender, ethnicity, religion. Gender's not learned. It's discovered, maybe. But everything else is learned. So in China, in the countries you're talking about, they all started out as human beings. And then, for whatever reason, the culture is layered over that. They're still human beings at their core. So there, there might be a culture of win-lose or uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, reasons, Americans is known as being very aggressive. America is a very aggressive culture. But we're still human beings underneath. And the rules for being humans underneath are all true. So while on its surface, people talk about cultural differences in negotiations, underneath, there's still a human being. That's amazing, yeah. And humans will more or less want and operate the, the same things and operate in similar ways is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And... It's so obvious people forget, I think the greatest proof of it, Facebook is not quite the influence that it was in the world, was it 2012, 2013-ish. Revolutions were being started all over the world as a result of Facebook. So Facebook was a massive influence in every country in the world except which ones? Except for sure China, except for sure. And why were they not an influence in China? Because China banned them. Of course, yeah. Like they banned us at Google, yeah. So... They're banning it because the emotional appeal of Facebook was universal. Human beings reacted emotionally universally across the globe. Mm -hmm. And the only way the Chinese could stop the emotional human reactions being caused on Facebook was simply block it. Mm 
They, they couldn't fight it, which means the human beings are pretty much the same wherever you go in the world because they were reacting to Facebook likes and dislikes. Mm. You start liking something in China, it spreads like a virus. Mm. You start liking something in the United States, it's the very same thing because we're, we're made up the same way emotionally. Yeah, I did a presentation, I think around that same time, 2012, actually in Tel Aviv, I remember vividly, which was my very first public speech in Israel that was called the world's largest nation. And the idea was, and I did it as a TED talk as well, but it was basically the idea that the, the internet was unifying the core of what we are as humans beyond boundaries, beyond culture, beyond language even. It's quite interesting what you see today that, as you rightly said, you know, the same content is being replicated slightly with slightly different gestures, but it's almost exactly the same everywhere in the world. And that if you add the number of people on the internet up, there are more similarities between a Korean 24-year-old and an American 24-year-old than that American 24-year-old and the rest of his village if they're not on, uh, on the internet. And, and if you add them up, then the largest population in the world is the population of the internet. And it's quite interesting that when you understand that, I think this is what companies like Facebook and others have really succeeded in acquiring followers and users because they understood that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I ask you then, you speak a lot about the fact that we don't just negotiate in the, in the meeting room. We don't just negotiate in the severe situations. You're, you're saying everyone's negotiating all the time. So right. you're sort of suggesting that a husband is always negotiating with his wife, that uh -huh. friends are negotiating together. I think the wife would be very upset if she thought that way. What do you mean by that? Depends upon the wife. And <laughs> it also depends upon each person's definition of negotiation. Two people that I think the world of and are big fans of the book who are married. Mm -hmm. In the early days before they were married, the, the, the man, the fiance, is taking one of our negotiation classes. And she says to him one day, you know, I'm really enjoying talking with you lately. What's going on? Hmm. Because she really enjoyed it. And it, she, it struck her that it was different. And he said, well, uh, I'm taking this negotiation class <laughs> built around never split the difference. Uh -huh. And um, they're making me use it at home. <laughs> and she went out and bought copies of the book for all of her girlfriends, boyfriends, and husbands. Okay. So negotiation to her, if negotiation is collaboration. Is it really? Well, again, I, I know that. I'm just asking the question rhetorically. For, it is uh, for, if, <laughs> if, like, a negotiation with me, regardless of your approach, you can't make me stop collaborating with you. Like, it, it always is, always, 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 always is with me. One of the big differences between myself and my Harvard brothers and sisters, I mean, uh, I attended Harvard, I taught at Harvard, mm. is they believe in negotiation. They'd say, well, first of all, let's talk about the process. <laughs> Let's yeah. negotiate the process. Let's mm -hmm. talk about how we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was an FBI hostage negotiator when, when I went through their training. I thought, you can talk about it all you want. I'm not changing my approach. Mm -hmm. I'm still going to ask you questions. They're going to make you think and slow you down. Mm -hmm. And if you get too aggressive with me, I'm going to ask you questions that are going to tire you out. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you do, that's going to be my approach. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's always been collaboration. Now, it's not collaboration for everybody. There are some people that see it as win-lose. And consequently, they don't have as much in their life as they could have. But they don't know any better. You know, they're like, they're like the person in a clothing store. I walk into a clothing store four or five years ago. 
with the young lady that I'm dating and she sees the jacket she wants and it's got a flaw in it. She says, watch me get 10% off for this. Hmm. And I knew that she was going to go to the counter and she's going to be very aggressive and she was going to point out the flaw. It was nearly invisible, mm -hmm. would never be seen when she wore it. And she's going to be really proud of herself for getting 10% off by being angry, mm. being aggressive, the win-lose type. And I thought, I'll go be collaborative and I'll get 30%. <laughs> but she will always have been proud of having gotten 10% off and would brag about that mm. and say, I'm a great negotiator. Look at me, I got 10% off. Mm. Never knowing that being collaborative and nice and empathic gets more. So, so how would you do that differently? I mean, she, she must have gone there and said, hey, you know, you're mistreating me. This is wrong. You know, just compensate me. Yeah, yeah. You would do it how? I'd, first, I'd introduce myself, mm -hmm. which most people never do, especially if they're going to attack. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to attack anonymously. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to go up and start yelling at somebody, you don't start out by going like, hey, I'm Chris. <laughs> nice to meet you, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be the first thing. I, I got to make, I, now, I didn't ask you your name. Mm -hmm. when I did that. Interesting. I gave you mine because your name, which you love the sound of, you've also had it used against you so much. Mm. Like somebody say, more, more of this, more of that, more of this, you know, and just use your name 10 times so it's being used against you. Mm. And you don't like that. You don't like to have it overused. Mm. So I want your name, but I want you to give it to me voluntarily. And so I'm going to know right away, I'm already going to get a psychological test on you immediately about how you see me, whether or not you give your name in return. That's mm. the first test. Mm. And if you don't give your name in return, then I know that your guard is up and somebody else made you bring your guard up, which means if I can get your guard down, you're going to be that much more collaborative with me. Amazing. I'm going to have an advantage. Mm. Like I love to walk up to a counter, an airport or any other place, hotel, after the person behind the counter has been yelled at. Oh. Because you can show the contrast of being respectful. Yeah, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be a nice guy. And I'm going to get more because of it. And the person that wanted 10% off probably just yelled at him. Now, whatever they could do for me, I want them to be able to do it happily. Because there's always a chance that I'm going to need to come back to it. Mm. So if, if it's a win-lose negotiation and I beat you, then you're not going to help me the next time I come back because yeah. you're going to be resentful. Yeah, and the next time I'll probably start from a lot higher so that, you know, exactly. make it reasonable for me when we end the conversation. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'll start up saying, I'm Chris. Mm -hmm. And then I think, well, what are you going to think if I start demanding a discount? Mm -hmm. You're going to think that I'm a jerk or that I'm greedy or I'm selfish or I'm cheap. So I'll start out by saying that. I said, look, I, you know, and I'll probably smile. I say, I, I know that I'm going to seem greedy and cheap and selfish and unappreciative of how much you have to go through working in this store where they overwork you and they underpay you and they don't appreciate you. You've won me completely. Exactly. So then I, then I go like, I'll be like, I'll just, I'll just show it to you mm. and say, Hey, <laughs> yeah. And then you probably volunteer to do something for me. Like in, in this particular in instance, um, when I had that jacket, I, I knew 30% was going to be, I knew she could get 10, I knew 30% was going to be pretty good. And so I kept working on this guy to get him down to 30%, and he, and he couldn't work, on, work, it, work it through the 
cash register. He needed a special code. So I saw him, I says, wait right here. And I saw him move around the store. And I saw him walk up to a guy that I perceived to be a manager. And I saw him whispering in his ear and asking him questions. And I saw this manager going like, no, 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 no. And he hesitated for a minute. He started to walk back. And then a girl that also worked there walked up and whispered in his ear. And he went, oh, okay. And he came over and he gave me the discount. Interesting. <laughs> and, and so he went out of his way to find out how to do it for me. Because mm. I had been nice. Oh, so he went to her and she went to him. She, she saw him, the manager, tell him no. Mm -hmm. And she had heard the interaction between the two of us. Oh. And it, I, I always negotiated in a way where somebody important and influential can watch in and listen. And it'll be okay. Mm. And she had heard the interaction. And when he was coming back, she stopped him. He said, here's how, here's how you're working out for this guy. That's amazing. So, Chris, so what this means is that you're the nice guy, <laughs> right? You're not here to rip me off. You're actually here to say there is a fair place for all of us here. Now, I'm not attacking you as the negotiator on the other side. But that's not how negotiations are normally perceived. Right. And I can, I can only imagine that you can't be that way with someone who's kidnapped a fellow citizen of your country, right? Well, everybody's got discretion. Mm. And um, there are things you can, like, I got to know what you're really after. And there are things you can do for me. There's always little things you could do for me mm. that are going to affect the outcome. And I want them all. Mm. All little things, whatever they are. I don't know what they are, but there are always things that you can do that can help the outcome. Or that help, can help me create a better outcome. In, in a kidnapping, much of it might be, since the hostage is probably going to live in kidnapping, kidnapping for ransom, it's commodities exchange business. Mm. Uh, and a kidnapper is in business. Mm. And any business that doesn't deliver when it gets paid soon gains a reputation of not delivering. Yeah. And people stop paying them. Mm. So kidnappers who are in the business learn that if they, if they take money for ransoms and they don't let hostages go, people are going to stop giving them money. Mm. That's just, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So there's always, the hostage is probably going to live in a kidnapping. Not always, but probably. So here, the issue here is how long are they going to be held and how are they going to be treated? Because I want, I want you to be treated, I want the hostage to be treated like a human being, and I want them to be held for the least amount of time. Mm. Both of those things are going to minimize the financial and emotional trauma on, on the, them and the family. Mm. So that's what I want from the person I'm talking to. Mm. I, I want to know that they're being treated okay. I don't ask for it, but I'll do certain ways like, you know, if the hostage's name is Chris, anytime they refer to the hostage, I'll say, you mean Chris? For the same reason that I gave my name at the, gro at the clothing store, mm -hmm. it humanized me. It humanizes Chris. It humanizes the hostage. Mm -hmm. And it'll increase the chances that the hostage will be treated better and the hostage will get out sooner. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of little, little things, all the little things. And little things add up. Totally. Very quickly, if you let them. So let's go back to marriage uh, relationships. And I'm glad you came back to that because my analogy for great negotiations and great business deals is always, you should be after a long-term trusted relationship where you trust the other side. Mm. 
allow, in a marriage allows intimacy. In a business, you know, maybe intimacy in other ways. But a long-term trusted relationship. Mm. Marriages and business mm. deals. Mm. So that's a great collaboration, which is why it applies in business and at home. So what is being negotiated here? Collaboration is usually time and information. Like most people think it's only a negotiation of money's at stake. I wanted you to say that. That's one of my favorite quotes of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So it's time and information. Let's, right. let's talk a little more about that. If you're trying to get somebody to do something for you, you're asking for their time. Their action takes time. That commodity is always there. And quite frequently, simultaneously, to find out what the best action is, and that's information. Hmm. Like, what do you think? What do you want to get? How do you want to proceed on this? What are your goals? I'm looking for information to see how that fits into what I want, and maybe we've got an exact match. So it's it's time and information that's always there. And, and in many cases, money's not there at all, or depending upon the time and, and the information, the money becomes less and less relevant. Uh, example, you're familiar with my masterclass, obviously. Yeah. And masterclass has been phenomenal. So I'm doing a special masterclass event in New York City about two weeks ago because masterclass is, is a great deal for companies. Yeah. You know, it, can, it, it helps improve your employees' professional and personal life. If you buy them a masterclass subscription, mm. they will learn how to cook. There's cooking classes. Mm. They want to learn how to negotiate. There's my negotiation class. They want to someday be screenwriters. There's Aaron Sorkin's got a great class on screenwriting. Absolutely. So it's a great thing to give your employees to improve them personally and professionally. So this guy's head of sales, major electronics company, says he gave master class and had all of his salespeople study it, my negotiation course. They cut their discounting rate by half. Amazing. And simultaneously doubled their revenues. So if they cut their discounting rate by half, that means effectively they raised their prices and doubled their revenues at the same time. Mm. Because they were in a business where people always talked about price. And I said, hey, there's something besides price. It's delivery. It's timing. You know, find out what makes the price a good deal, what makes the price a bad deal. They found out that they could change up the terms on their deals when they were selling their electronics equipment to contractors who are hard bargainers. Mm -hmm. And... There are always, there's almost always something more important than the price to the contractor. When are they going to get the equipment? How's it going to be delivered to them? Is it going to be, is it going to come in one load? Or is it going to come in multiple loads? If all the electronic equipment they buy comes at once, but they have to install it in a, in a home over a period of two or three weeks. Yeah. There's cost of they money. Got storage there's storage. storage yeah. They got a storage problem. It's better for them to, to have it shipped out in three or four shipments. Hmm. So as soon as they started talking to contractors about everything other than price, the contractors started giving them less trouble over the price. Mm. And the deal became better for both sides. Mm. The contractor could implement it better, and the seller of the equipment could maintain their price. Yeah. And, and they doubled their revenues. Yeah. I, I always, always, always told my sales teams that. When I worked at Google at the beginning, so I worked first at Google itself, right? Seven years, opened half of Google. And the sales teams, believe it or not, the first slide was price. Yeah. It's like, if you pay that much money, you get those many ads that delivers that many, that much revenue. And I was like, never even bring it up until the customer says, that's exactly what I want. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it's so interesting how we just narrow everything down to price. And in reality, price is just 
a function of what you're actually getting and un until you realize what you're actually getting, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, so it's it's quite interesting. And and in that case, the customer will pay, pay double. And we don't know that because we've never investigated <laughs> because we're haggling on price. Right, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We started from relationships. I don't want to miss that thread. Okay. So I'm the wife or I'm the, you know, the, the partner. My partner on the other side is negotiating for what? Like information, for example, what would? Well, or potentially even the experience mm -hmm. or just so we talk together, which I think a lot of people, and it's not necessarily men, but men are more guilty of having less appreciation for the experience of being together mm. than women are. Mm -hmm. I'm in a relationship now, a wonderful girl named Wendy. I don't expect that to ever change. She... Well, Did you hear that, Wendy? Did you hear that? <laughs> it just gave you the outcome of the negotiation. All right, yes, okay. You know, and she'll, she'll say, look, ask me what it was like for me. Because I want to share with you what the experience was like for me. When we spend time together for her quality time. Oh, that's so good. Is of exchanging how things are impacting us. Mm. And I'm sort of like, I did this, I did this, I did this. Okay, can we go watch TV now? <laughs> <laughs> Transaction. Can I turn the TV back on? <laughs> yeah. And she, she'll want to talk to me. And then when I see how, how good it makes her feel to share it with me, I think like, wow, wow, I'm completely... Thank goodness she reminds me and she just flat out tells me, mm. you know, let's find a way to enjoy talking with one another. And so her, for her, the commodity is the enjoyment of the interaction. That's very true. Yeah. And, and often, actually, one side of the, of the relationship is much more around that connection, that conversation than the other. I mean, you know, actually, man, woman, straight, gay, doesn't matter. There's always right. one that is a little more talkative and the other that's a little more quiet you know one that is a lot more about sharing the others and so on and so right. and i and i think that exchange of information itself now it's not really a negotiation or or is it i mean in that case you're saying i'm giving you the joy of my listening and you know you're giving me the joy of your sharing is that how it is well and then yes and no i mean the experience in and of itself but the other thing if i'm listening and i don't do this enough but the opportunity to surprise her or buy something for her or do something for her or share something for her, with her, then that'll come from that interaction. Like if I hear her talk about influences of hers when, when she was a little girl or stuff that are great memories for her, if I can buy her, find her a memento of that for her and give it to her as a gift, either spontaneously or a birthday or some, some other special occasion. Then, then that's, that's the added bonus because I was listening because she shared it with me. Mm. Like she, her, her last birthday, it actually, it made, you know, I was angry at one of her friends. Okay. Angry in a good way. Cause I'm working, I got this big surprise party going for her that she doesn't know is coming. And of all the movies in the world that Wendy's loved was Xanadu with Olivia Newton John. Oh, interesting. And she's a huge fan of Xanadu's. And so day of her birthday, um, she, she'd done fantastic stuff for me on my birthday. So I also have a very high bar to clear. And I just give her a card to start the day. Now, I know I get this great surprise party at the end of the day. And I got to act like nothing's going on, which I know is she's going to be pouting and disappointed to walk around. You know, I did all this for you on your birthday. And give me a card. <laughs> you gave me a card. So I got I to gotta survive the day, right? So I hear in the other room... And I don't know if she's happy, if she's crying, if she's been shot. 
Like, I don't know what is going on. I just hear this howling in the other room. Well, her friend had found an actor from Xanadu to send her a birthday greeting. Oh. And her friend just, and she, it was like the happiest. And she's sitting there thinking like, why can't you think of something that's invaluable to me? Is this, is this actor from Xanadu wishing me happy birthday on my It's an interesting coincidence, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I'm like... Oh, I was so mad at her friend for making me look so bad uh -huh. temporarily in that uh -huh. moment. But those, that's the kind of information that you get when you're sharing with somebody. Amazing, yeah. yeah and then, then it gives you the opportunity to put yourself in a position to maybe get them something special on down the line. So I, I have to say here that it's quite interesting because if I follow you, I do, those who follow you will know that you're a serious strategist, like you're serious. But there's this side of you where you're basically saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to use everything I know about my work, my life, my, you know, to have this beautiful connected relationship with one person. And, you know, I'm writing my, uh, finishing almost my next uh, book after next, it's called Finding Love. And I dare say, I use the term ROI, uh, which is return on investment in a relationship. And I'm really worried because I think the romantics will, would really hate me for it. But, 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 but I feel that there is, in relationships, there is that idea of a return on investment. The investment here is not being money. The investment is my time, my effort, my attention. Yeah. Uh, your time, your effort, your attention. And it has to somehow be a reasonable deal. Do you believe that's true in relation, yeah, in love relationships? Yeah. And, and how, how would a couple do that? How, one of the things that we know here in the Middle East, and I think is less visible in the West is, we don't do transactions as transactions. We don't, if you buy me a box of chocolate, I don't give you an exact box of chocolate back. I'll give you a book back or something else, like you rightly said. So it's always in kind and it's always blurry, but there is a constant giving happening from both sides. Right. But at the end of the day, sometimes couples will either fail to or refuse to make the return worthy of the investment, sort of. So in relationships where the couple know that they love each other, but they're unable to find that satisfaction with the returns or like they don't feel they're getting enough is there a, a technique they can follow yeah well i think if you really just first of all start start hearing each other out the gift of your time isn't so much you're in the same room at the same time which i think is more likely to be a man's reaction you know you want my time okay we'll be in the same room i'll still watch tv but <laughs> what do you watch on tv Actually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a channel surfer. I'll only, I'll only turn it on briefly at different points in time. Another discussion with a girlfriend today because I was talking, I like action adventure. She likes, you know, girl <laughs> movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a biggie, actually. That's a biggie because how many romantic comedies can a man watch? Like, seriously, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I was telling her about the science fiction movies that I discovered lately. And she's like, all right, you, you watch all those on the airplane because I'm not going to watch them. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I'm say, wait, wait, I'll find one with Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams in it, and they'll be in a science fiction movie. Cause that was what, that was <laughs> and they'll kiss somewhere in the movie, right? Is that, is that, is that, is that okay? Has, yeah. Will yeah. that work? Yeah. No, but, but this is the point. The point is... Actually, it's a great example to think about, huh? So, you know, in, in previous relationships, I'm, I'm currently in my very interesting, actually, monk phase. So I decided to be a monk for a year. And it's quite eye-opening and clarifying in many ways. But, but it is, I remember vividly that 
I would go out of my way to watch When Harry Met Sally for the 217th time. And when it's time to watch, you know, the Justice League or whatever, <laughs> okay, they'll say, no, you know, you watch that on your own. Uh, that, that's an interesting negotiation because I'd like to have my woman watch the Justice League with me. I know it's a bit of a push, but where is that conversation? Do you think you can get that as in the negotiator? You can get one. And also, she'll endure it. Which yeah. will be an unpleasant experience for her. Is when Harry met Sally a good experience for you? You know, I, actually, I like that. When, when that first came out way back when, I do remember enjoying that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't watch it as often as I was watch Justice League. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inception, Inception, times, Inception. Yeah, yeah. yeah I watched that eight times. I watched Harry met Sally maybe once. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know I do. She's honest with me enough now, and I care enough about her that I know that she endures that stuff, and also. She just doesn't like violence. Yeah. So for me, it's the, it's cartoons. It's cartoon violence. It's almost yeah. a roadrunner coyote. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not real. Mm -hmm. uh, but for her, it, you know, it does trouble her. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, it, it, and that is, is, you know, like, how do you watch a movie that's half Harry Met Sally and half Justice League? I mean, you couldn't, you can't make that movie. You got to watch either no, one. No, no. Yeah. And then, then what are you trying to do in, the moment, like if when we take the time to watch a movie she wants to watch, then the ripple effects on her mood and how she feels and the hours for hours, if not days. Yeah, yeah, true. Clearly, to my benefit, maybe she cooks something for me or she she wants to, instead of split the difference, she wants to do something that means as much to me as it meant to her. And that's the point, isn't it? That's the point. The, po the point is... You know, if I get you a box of chocolate, you don't give me a box of chocolate back, right? Uh, so, so, you know, if, if I watch this movie with you, which is not my top priority or top preference, then maybe listening to Pink Floyd together or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You find and discover other stuff. Yeah. Can I ask you a very interesting question? Isn't it selfish to constantly want to negotiate and get the best deal? Yeah, and I don't know that it, it, that's only bad is if, if it's at the expense of the other person. I love that answer, yeah. So what you're saying is that a successful negotiation doesn't have to be costly for the other person. Right. It's just, they're just yeah. giving, you, they're giving you what you need that doesn't cost them much, and you're giving them what they need that doesn't cost you much. I'm trying to think of the best term, but like a, a smart exchange of value. Yeah. yeah. Not necessarily fair, but smart. I mean, and when you talk about selfish, you also start to get into really circular definitions. Like I can remember hearing a long time ago, you know, altruism, doing charitable work. Well, you could accuse anybody that, well, you're only doing charitable work because it makes you feel good. Consequently, helping the poor is a very selfish thing to do. <laughs> True. Yeah. So what's, what's the real definition? As long as it's not at the expense of the other people that are involved. You can be as selfish I, I as you that. want. Yeah. And, and isn't it selfish that someone kept 30% away from you when they, you know, when they could have given it to you, that you had to negotiate to get it, right? Possibly. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, that 30% difference... They're really trying to make up for in a store. They're trying to pay for their costs of being stolen from. Is that true? Well, you know, every store gets stolen from. Mm. So they have to have the prices to cover all their costs. Interesting. So they've got shoplifting. They've got damage in transit. You know, all these costs that I had nothing to do with inflicting on them. Mm. Yet you're trying to get me to pay you a higher amount of money so that you can to cover, cover things that I had nothing to do with. That's so interesting. 
But, but that also, again, shows tremendous empathy on your side. You're saying, I understand your situation. Yeah, and that's really, you know, I understand, and then I, and then I act in a way that demonstrates the understanding. Mm. It's not enough to understand. It's essential to understand, but it's also inadequate. You have to then have some sort of follow-on action or verbalization yeah. to convey the understanding. Yeah. Do you believe that at the end of this, I mean, I tend to be an incredibly good negotiator when I'm in business, I think. I am a horrible negotiator for myself. Interesting, yeah. So I normally, when I look at the other guy, if it's a business deal, I never wanted to say incredibly good, but I'm good at it. I'm right? sure you are. I, yeah. and I, can tell, I can tell you several reasons why right off the top of my head. Thank you. So I honestly and truly, I think I had a very interesting experience as a young man. I worked at IBM at the time, and I sold a mega system to the educational buildings organization after the Egyptian earthquake. And uh, the system was sort of the prerequisites for the aid, the international aid, to be funneled into the Egyptian treasury so that we can rebuild the schools after the earthquake. And so they required that we have GIS systems and geographic information systems and engineering systems and CADs and so on. And very quickly, like I didn't know at the time, but after I sold it, I realized that the system was not going to work. Like even before we delivered the equipment, it started to become very clear that the engineering system specifically was not going to work, that there were other vendors that would do the GIS better, that there were some data admin stuff in the system that we did very well at IBM at the time, but the rest wasn't. So I, I literally sat outside the minister's office 9 a.m. in the morning, Minister of Education, and I said, can I meet His Excellency? And they said, who are you? And I said, I'm the IBM guy. And they said, wait here. And then at 6.30 p.m., he says, you've been here all day, what do you want? So I walked in and I said, the system's not gonna work. And you know, I apologize to tell you this, but I suggest you cancel the order of A, B, and C. And I went back to my office and, you know, and I was talking to my boss, feeling that he's gonna fire me, right? right? And I said, look, I just couldn't live with kids not going to school because our system's not gonna work. So it was a $4.2 million deal. They canceled like 2.6 million of it and kept the rest. And my boss said, you did the right thing. Two weeks later, the customer calls me back, the minister himself, and gives me a direct order for $16 million. He literally sits me down and says, look, we need those other systems. Which of them can you offer, okay? So I said, your excellency, give me a day, went back, did my proper design, went back to him and said, those are working, okay? I suggest you take them from us, we're the best in the market. Those are not, I suggest you take that from Oracle, this from Sun, that from whatever, right? And from then onwards, that client literally trusted me to the point that I realized that selling was never about making money for something that doesn't work. It was always about finding that little place that we both win. And it changed my life in business. But when it comes to the personal side, Chris, I go like, yeah, come on, you know, what if I take 10 more and you take 10 less? I'd rather you have the 10, okay? Which is really weird, right? Somehow I just don't want to. What does that mean? Learn behavior and then how do we, how do we see ourselves when it, what's at stake? Yeah. Well, probably, the quickest answer uh, I could give you is, I think that, first of all, there are three types that are universal, which is principally fight, flight, and make friends. <laughs> Interesting, okay. And it's human beings' approach to conflict, and there's a particular test out there called the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument 
that breaks into five conflict types. And myself and my Harvard brothers and sisters think that two of those five are learned and that there's three core types, which boil down to fight, flight, make friends. And each one has a component that gives them some negotiating ability that's essential and also inadequate for excellence. And your type sounds to me like, to me, the, the make friends type is very, is very people oriented, very relationship oriented yeah. first. And your concern when uh. the Egyptian deal was people concern mm-hmm. versus information concern, mm-hmm. in, interestingly enough, or even because the flight type is the information focused person. Mm-hmm. The flight type just that looks at conflict as being highly inefficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they just don't have an appetite for it because it's mm-hmm. incredibly inefficient. And the fight type likes to be very aggressive. And demanding and forceful. So eye-opening. Yes, that's true. I can see those. And we've seen in my company, like we've literally tested probably 20,000 people. Because we started doing this testing first. I went through the testing at Harvard, which was a, a, a multinational student body. And then in teaching at Georgetown at USC, multinational student bodies. Um, Georgetown was a little heavier, was more representation from India USC was more representation from Asia, but still a very international group and saw all three types. The world splits pretty evenly into thirds. My company taught uh, business executives from the Chinese Development Bank for a while. Mm. So it was just Chinese. We saw all three types, five flight, make friends. So we've got enough reason to back up the hypothesis that the world splits into thirds. Mm. And your concerns in both your personal and professional negotiation of the person, the relationships, mm-hmm. how they felt about you, trust as an issue. And then in your personal relationships, you sound like you're even more given. That's sadly true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Way, way more. Actually, I'm working on it way yeah. more than I should be. Yeah. And that's, that's in that inclination when, when, the, when the deal, if you were, gets so much closer to your heart yeah. and to who you are at, at your core, then you're going to be even more into your default type. Yeah. Which is the, you know, the relationship oriented human being. Is that a bad thing? I mean, honestly, in my, I think you're spot on, by the way. Honestly, in my heart, if, you know, if I'm ever negotiating with you, not that I ever have a chance, right? But I like you so much as a person that in somehow in my mind, I'd rather give you what I want. You know what I mean? And that's a very bad negotiation position. Really. Well, it, it is, it can be bad long term, especially if the other person, like, I don't want you to lose. Use. Yeah. Like if, if yeah, we're yeah, in exactly. a negotiation, I really want you to come out and tell me what you want. Yeah. Because I know it's going to benefit the longevity of our relationship if, if you get stuff out of this too. Mm. You know, again, if, you're, if your focus is long-term prosperity, whether it's a, a personal relationship or business relationship, mm. but if it's long-term prosperity and, and mine is, my company's is, then we got to give you stuff that you need because you're not going to be able to survive otherwise. Yeah. You know, I need you to survive yeah. to, for you to be a great partner in business. Mm. You got to make a profit. Such an interesting concept coming from a negotiator because it's not the fight. I want to win everything and I'm aggressive. I actually want you to succeed too, because that's good for me in the long term. It's very selfish of me mm. for you to be a great partner mm. that prospers because you're always going to be there for me. And then very much like uh, your example of the minister, he trusts you enough to tell you what he really needs. Yes. You saved him a massive amount of time by then giving him what would work. Exactly. Like, so that was probably the best $16 million he ever spent. Absolutely true. Because he was used to spending, well, the first contract was 4.2 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 
You know, uh, government ministers across the world are used to dropping $4.2 million on a project and, and having some or all of it be lost. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, they're tired of that. Yeah. You know, and he's got, he's, I could spend $16 million with this guy and I'll get $16 million worth of value. Yeah, or more. The contract previously, he spends $4.2 million and maybe gets $2 million worth of value. Yeah. That's a bad deal. Mm-hmm. But once he knows he can trust you, like he, he starts paying you money. Mark Cuban was talking to me. Um, I interviewed him on negotiation one time and he works really hard to establish trusted relationships in business right off the bat because then the velocity of the deal making accelerates. Every subsequent deal that he and that other person make after that, since they can trust each other, the valuable Very commodity true. of time. Very true. Bang, bang, bang. It just goes that much faster. Yeah. And, and there's, there's that consistent expectation of that it will work. And I think that's really what we're looking for. I don't want to take too much of your time. I know you have a call shortly, but it's such an enjoyable conversation. Mainly my topic in the modern world really is happiness and how we can end up in places that are happy for all of us. Not because happiness is that fluffy thing, but because it's really the base for us to be good humans, deal with others and so on. To thrive. Yeah, to thrive. So would you, from your mindset as a strategist and negotiator and so on, what do you think is your like top secret for happiness maybe? The top secret is pick any of the cliche things that they tell you to do, but realize the reason why you have to do it is because your, your default mode mentally as a human being survival which is negative and i think of it often as similar mental hygiene to oral hygiene you should do a gratitude exercise or express appreciation or something positive for yourself every day in the morning even if just for five minutes do i have to brush my teeth today this morning when i get out of bed well but wait a minute i brushed them yesterday or i brushed them last night do i got to do it again today mm-hmm. Yeah, because your default existence mode requires hygiene. And your your default mental uh, format is survival, which is negative. So you wake up in an unhappy. Survival mode is, by definition, unhappy. Yeah. If you're negative, it's, by definition, unhappy. You're pessimistic about the outcome. The optimistic, happy caveman got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> Correct. Doesn't have any descendants. Uh The pessimistic guy ran or ate it or tamed it, but that's who we we survive from. Mm -hmm. So if you first accept that it's required, just like brushing your teeth is required, just like bathing is required, it's then it becomes less of a chore and it's a way to thrive. And then you remind yourself you got to do it every day. And I do I do a a small gratitude exercise uh, every morning. And then through the course of the day, I make it a uh, a point to be thankful or grateful or to look around and go like, wow. You know, appreciate something. It's a beautiful blue sky. There are a number of cliche things that could be done, but you have to do them, whichever one you pick. Mm. Mine happens to be gratitude. I Occasionally, I'll go through times when I read someplace, pick three new things you like each day in your surroundings, which then changes each day into a bit of an adventure to look for something That's you so like. so beautiful, yeah. And how did, how did Facebook flourish globally? Likes. Mm-hmm. You know, this, not dislikes. The pursuit of likes. Yeah. And in the different periods of time when I look for three new things I like each day, I notice the impact daily is minimal. But in a week, I'll be like, wow, I feel, I feel great. Blessed. Yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying life. Yeah. So the secret to happiness is adopting some sort of practice because you have to 
because you wake up in a negative mode every day and the spiritual hygiene is required as much as oral hygiene is required. That is so spot on. My gratitude for today is to have met you. I have to say, reading you, which I said before is a must, by the way, is very different than meeting you. You're so deeply human in such a beautiful way. It's such a joy to be sitting next to you. And it's actually such a beautiful feeling to the point like, it is true. If we were negotiating, I'd like you to come and negotiate with me again. It's, it's, I think you've nailed that art, really. It's, it's incredible. And I'm really grateful that you came and gave me the time. It's really been wonderful, Chris. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Same here. And for all of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this. I'm sure you enjoyed this as much as I did. It's so interesting how we get this wrong. Negotiating is not a selfish act at all. It's an act of connecting deeply, wanting what's good for the other party as much as what you want for yourself. It's also really an act of seeking information, finding time and efficiencies. It's not only about the money or about taking something from the other guy. I tend to believe, sadly, that we look at negotiations as fight, flight, or make friends. And for many of us around the world, we think of it as a fight. And when we think of it as a fight, it ends up becoming a fight. And that's not at all what you want. We want a connection of some sort in every interaction that we have, like Chris and Wendy sounds amazing. Wendy, you're lucky, by the way. I think he's very lucky too from what he... Yeah, uh, I'm a lucky one. Uh, uh, yeah, from what he said about you. Uh, and so I, I invite every one of us to maybe pause, listen to this again, and understand the subtleties of how you can actually make your life so much better if you negotiate it for a better deal for both you and the other side. For that, I am negotiating with you now to share this with others because I actually believe it would benefit others and they'll probably like you back for it. Uh, and uh, yeah, like it on whatever podcast player you're playing it on. Tell what you learned to other people. And do please check Chris's work out. It's incredible. I'm really honored to have had him here today. And it's all because of you, because you give me the opportunity to spend time with such incredible people. Uh, I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.